I'm really excited for this one, people. I'm really excited for this one. So I left you in suspense, right? Why am I excited for this one? Well, it's another episode with a very special guest. Uh, another one with three initials before the Gerald. You know who it is. I, I I was going to do this every year, and I've done it three times now. I have three episodes with my wife so far, but uh, we're going to make it more often. I would not say that she's going to become a co-host every time. I'm still going to have other guests and so forth and all that. But uh, you're going to hear more from her because... Um, not to get too deep, but we have found a way to find topics on which we ha- both have a lot to say. I mean, that's part of the thing is that we never had topics on which we had all that much in common. And so it was either one of my topics or one of her topics, right? One of them was about housing or whatever. Um, but we found a way to tie it into the pandemic and, and so forth. And anyway, we're going to talk about Black History Month. I know it's March, although we're recording this in February, Uh, but we're going to reflect on Black History Month and our experiences in it and some of the bullshit, all right? Anyway, there is a Patreon in the show notes. You should contribute if you like the work, although I do understand that everybody can afford this and I mostly do this for fun, but if you feel like you want to contribute, have at it. Please do buy the book if you haven't yet, but like I said, more people have bought the book than listened to this show, so good on you. All right. I did it again. I always do it. This is Unstandardized English. My name is Dr. J.P.B. Gerald. Okay. Okay. Is that working? Turn it up. All right. So, look, we are back here once again. And uh, usually it's only once a year that I talk to this special guest on my show. And the last time she was here, we talked about uh, me graduating and so on. But uh, now we're going to talk about something entirely different. We're going to talk about Black History Month. I know it is March when you hear this. Uh, That's kind of the point, sort of reflecting on it. Um, Talk a little bit about our histories with it, and I'm sure we're going to end up talking about our son, because the guest is the illustrious Alyssa Margaret Titer Gerald. <laughs> so, Alyssa, hello. Can you tell the people who you are to me? Uh, I am your wife. <laughs> but for the purposes of this, we're talking about that. Can you tell, because they can't see you, can you tell them a little bit about, like, your identity, broadly speaking. People who know me know, but the people in like England don't know anything about you. My identity, broadly speaking. I am biracial, and my father is from Jamaica, and my mother is uh, from here, but she's of Italian and potentially Irish background. Potentially. Yes. Okay, I just didn't feel like holding it anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, and you grew up in a, well, it's not a small town, but it's a suburb, right? I know it's next to the city, but like not everything next to the city is a suburb. So you grew up in a suburb of New Haven. For the people who aren't in the United States, New Haven was formerly the largest city in Connecticut. 
now I think it's the second largest city. It's where Yale is for the people who know where schools are. And she's from North Haven, which is, well, north of there. Um, not the, well, you tell me a little bit about North Haven. It's small, um, mostly Italian Americans that live there. It can also run Republican. Um, and it's, you know, relatively boring. <laughs> and to be clear, for those who don't know, like Connecticut does not run Republican. So for a town to run Republican is, is a bit of an outlier in, in the overall state. Um, so that's why it's worth noting. It's like saying, well, I grew up in Wyoming, my town runs Republican. Well, that doesn't really mean anything about the town. <laughs> so uh, I guess people on this show know who I am and my background, but as a contrast, and yeah, aside from me being black, although I actually do have a sliver of Irish heritage myself, um, there's also the fact that I grew up, at a, grew up, I went to a very, very expensive private school, which is even more expensive now. I mean, everything's more expensive now because of inflation, but I mean, it's also like far surpassed inflation because um, it's got a college price and just like college prices have far surpassed inflation. And what I was taught about black history was the same two things everybody else is taught. Martin Luther King, slavery. Uh, yeah, that's basically all I remember from school. I know a lot now, but at the time, most of the black history I got was from my family. What did they teach you in school, Alyssa? I don't recall anything related to it. Um, and I can't, the things that I can remember, I wasn't a very good student by way of like retention. Uh, you know, remembering things, but I don't, a couple of things I can remember, I don't know if they were explicitly in February due to Black History Month, but there's lessons around, like, the caste system and serfdom, which probably wasn't in February, but that's the only thing that I remember, and then the other thing was some diversity exercise, where I remember the Spanish teachers were largely involved. <laughs> And they had us, I don't even remember it though, it was like, I, re, I have just like a very small memory of it. And they had like questions and that you sat at a different table and asked people different questions. Like that was kind of like the gist of it. So I don't know again when that was in the calendar year, but those are the only two things that I can really remember, um, you know, remotely related to this. And then, I'm not sure when it happened. I think it happened during our lifetimes, though, that companies realized how profitable it was to adopt every, every I don't want to say progressive, but thing, right? Obviously, it's increased significantly since 2020, but that was not the beginning of people, care, you know, companies deciding that Black History Month was something they cared about for one month, right? Obviously, you see the same thing in June for Pride Month in the United States. Um, but I, I don't remember that being the case when I was like 10, right? Not every place had like a sign that said Black History Month or whatever. Obviously, places that were related to Black History surely did. But sometime when we were either adolescents or young adults, it just sort of became de rigueur for every company to like, well, obviously, social media didn't really exist back then, but like, to change their social media profiles to talk about Black History Month and start talking about it. And then as soon as March 1st came, they just, we don't exist. <laughs> so do you remember when you started to notice, like, 
broader things in the in the world but all of a sudden it was just like every company seemed to care no i don't i don't remember that seemed very recent to me yeah i mean i guess social media is a big part of it because like it's in your face all the time like as soon as you go on social media every company that's on every twitter or whatever instagram is posting about it right um but the commercials the like local news is teaching you something um, it's interesting to think about because we're not just having this conversation for no reason, right? We are raising a black child, um, and he's not really old enough to fully grapple with all of this stuff yet. Although we've started to teach him stuff, I've had a conversation with him where I don't think he understands what it means, but he he's able to say the sentence that he is a black person, or he said black boy, which was cute. Um, I, he doesn't know what that means, but. It's something that I've gotten him to say with pride. Uh, and it's something that we really, we can't gloss over. As silly as Black History Month has become, I don't mean that Black History is silly, but the way that Black History Month has become a corporate exercise and advertisement, it's something that we really have to take seriously, not just the month, but just under make sure he understands his context and his history. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess, you didn't have a black son until you had a black son. But when, when did you realize how important it would be for his sake? Um, I would say, I don't know if, you know, a moment in time, it's just as he gets older and, you know, has more awareness um, and in my own, uh, like, coursework to kind of, educate myself on things I didn't receive in schools uh, it just kind of highlights the you know how critical it is yeah for those who I guess you've explained on previous episodes but Alyssa's trained as a social worker she has an MSW um, but she works as a nonprofit what administrator administrator sounds like you're uh, administrative assistant but like a director what I sit in a desk <laughs> but she she manages people and projects. Manage people. Um, so anyway, uh, so the coursework, the point, because people hear coursework, they're probably like, "What are you talking about?" So what is the coursework you're talking about? Um, well, things that I've learned recently in like continuing education um, related to social work are like the whole uh, black settlement house movement and for a lot of my career I've worked in settlement houses and not once did any of them mention um you know the black settlement houses that are obviously very related so it was a little bit like alarming to me that I had never learned that in any of my placements or jobs or in school because settlement houses are a big part of um the foundation of social work um well depending on how you look at it but it's a big part of the education I think um and similarly um, talking about like CRT right now and you know one I guess it's okay to say one guy in the class what said like oh if we want this to be a conversation it's a white guy you know maybe there should be a word other than white supremacy so it's less <laughs> like jarring or whatever and we were all kind of like turning our heads um so it's just kind of like that stuff where it's like, wait a minute, 
yeah, this is like, you can't not know this if you're going to work in this field. Um, and then we have some people in the, in the class who are in private practice in like very small areas, uh, that are largely white and they'll say like their client base is largely white. So they feel like some of this doesn't apply to them, but you know, in the challenge when recently someone said like a lot of her, her women clients have eating disorders, um, you know, it was pointed out that, you know, what are eating disorders about and how it is, it is actually very closely tied to, you know, racial kind of whatever standards. standards. Yeah. Um, and I think that she was like super surprised to like understand that connection. So anyway, it's just kind of like why, if all of these things were taught in social work school or at least some of them, um, I think we'd all be better off in practice with whatever practice you have, um, macro or micro, and also um, with coworkers and, and colleagues. I remember the only diversity class I had in social work school, I basically like failed it because the teacher didn't, she just wasn't interested in like what, I don't know how you could be right or wrong, right? Like I wasn't going in there. I don't even remember what we talked about, but either way, I always got really, really bad grades. Um, and it was kind of like, what am I doing wrong? But it's a strange thing. And it's just kind of unfortunate that to get this education, you have to really seek it out. Um, you know, it should just be fundamental to the, the course. So for the people who don't know, like before I had any articles published, right? Um, I had this, I guess it's sort of a blog post or something published. It doesn't count for, like, publications as such, but before I even expected that I would get anything published, let alone, like, a book and all that, um, I just wanted to get some words out there. And the first thing I ever wrote for, like, the public was this little musing on different ways to refer to racism. And I actually was going back and forth on should we refer to it as racism, should we refer to it as white supremacy, should we refer to it as systemic racism, which, yeah, and, and, the, and I came to the conclusion that we should use systemic racism because it, uh, the same reason that guy said, because when you use the word white, it's jarring to white people, right? But I've had enough experiences now to know if you don't say the word white, but you're talking about it, they're still going to be upset. So then you might as well be direct about it, because <laughs> you're just wasting your time, right? What I started trying to be, because, you know, before I started doing all this work, I really thought I wanted to do, like, stuff related to this, but it wasn't about this. And I was like, maybe I'll put it under the diversity label, and then really hit them with the, like, whiteness analysis stuff, you know, try to be subversive about it. And then I said, well, the subterfuge is just going to piss them off. You might as well be direct, and then you're going to have a bit more honest audience. And you still get people who come, I guess still get people who come to my talks, and they're, like, mad. And I'm just like, I told you what it was. You saw the title. <laughs> so it's better to just be direct, because it's, you know, your training in social work, my training in education, my doctoral program was very different, and I think a lot of that is a timing thing, because it was only the last few years. But um, my master's in TESOL, I didn't, the word, word race never came up, not one time. 
and as I said it myself, but I was to the point where I wasn't even thinking about how much it wasn't there. You know, it wasn't there. It was so not there, I didn't even notice how not there it was, right? And it reminds me of a current class I'm taking, not on race or racism, that's about like uh, credit and you know, these things aren't going to come up. And when people try to change these things, it's like when people try to talk about CRT, people say, why do we need to talk about CRT and math? And it's like, we're not saying the numbers are racist. <laughs> we're saying the way that the lessons are applied and the way they're assessed and so forth, right? So like everything has to have a, a robust analysis of these things to be effective. Otherwise, you're gonna keep putting social workers out in the world and they're going to cause problems. A lot of the people who argue that we should defund the police, and obviously I agree with this, but they say, wouldn't it be better if social workers attended some of these people? I'm like, not all social workers. <laughs> because some of them are just going to call the cops anyway. Frankly, a lot of social workers and teachers are basically cops without guns. They can't hear you not. Yeah, they are. They are. That's true. Yep. She has a habit of nodding, but like it doesn't work on a podcast. Yes. I mean, I've experienced, you know, a lot of people who work at nonprofits are trained in, well, there's a lot of lawyers, but there's a lot of people trained in social work and education, depending on what their jobs are. I'm talking to it. Um, and they are absolutely no better than the random person off the street at these things because it's not, it has not been part of their training. All this stuff I talk about in my work, my education, my book, and dissertation and all that, all of this is making up for lost time because you weren't trained in this. That means that the first several years you were doing it, you didn't have the lens to do it as effectively as you could have. And I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm saying it's true for me too. Like, do you look back on some of the beginnings of your time and think about how you might have done things differently? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's definitely, I don't know, I don't necessarily think about, like, exactly how I would have done things differently, but it's more about the training that I received and how none of it was, you know, specific in this is how you work with this population, not from a, like, studying and like oh my god these are the people although that's kind of how it is like these are what the studies say about children in foster care it's like okay but it's just the lack of practical kind of training so like whenever I've supervised people as I've become more um knowledgeable I like include it in most of my supervisions and most of my meetings um with students and with you know, my, the people I supervise. Um, so they're all getting doses of it, but, um, it's not quite, it's not supported elsewhere. So it's just kind of like, those are the conversations that I have with them. Um, which not to minimize it, but it's just, it's kind of like contained. Uh, and I don't know how they exactly apply it outside of that if they do. But anyway, no one ever talked to me about these things. Um, and I've worked with all very marginalized populations, and it's never been a thing. Yeah, I am. Um, 
It reminds me when I had that, you probably remember this because we were all stuck in the same room three years ago, but, well, slightly less than three years ago, but in June, remember I had that very long conversation with the two British people because the one lady had said, had done something that seemed to be racist and we like talked to her about how she could do things better. I wasn't talking to you, but just because I was in the room, you probably saw me having the conversation. Yeah, she has this YouTube channel with like millions of subscribers, right? And the, the like slogan is like beautiful British English, right? Which is like, you see what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and now that being the slogan wasn't why this other person sort of criticized her because she had put a video together that was comparing accents in like positive and negative ways. And so she had this long conversation with us, like a two hour conversation, and she said she's really gonna listen, she was gonna feature other black YouTubers on her channel. And as far as I could tell, she did feature black YouTubers on her channel, and she said she was gonna change her slogan, and she was gonna do all this stuff. She took a few months off, and she went back to doing the same thing. <laughs> so like, unless she was gonna pay me to be on retainer to like, you know, yell at her consistently, what are you gonna do with one conversation? Is there, you, you gotta have the conversation, but like, it takes so much more. Well, it's just, it's limiting because people, I think that a lot of people feel, you know, open to it and like, I guess inspired is probably the right word to use to like do things different, but what they fail to do and fail to understand is that they have to keep studying and learning and it's not just mass produced or published books it's you know beyond that it's like learning histories like real histories um because i i haven't read any of those like mass produced books but i can imagine that um you know it's a good place to draw inspiration but without the historical kind of context which is what black history is a month and which often is the mark that's missed is that it's learning the whole black history not from the context of um you know a white person but outside of that and not just slavery which is important obviously but there's more to it than that i think that a really important part of it is understanding that so much of our current situation, yes, is influenced by slavery, but is really influenced by the backlash to emancipation. Because, yes, there are many markers of slavery and so forth, but, like, we did have a chance after that. Though, you know, we had about eight years. That second Ta-Nehisi Coates book is called We Were Eight Years in Power. It's because there were about eight years after emancipation where there were a whole bunch of, like, black Congress people in the South, and so whenever you see like Warnock and people like that who were senators and Congress people, it's usually like the first black person since 1870. Like, how was there one in 1870, right? And it's because there was a moment, and then they got really mad, and that's that's when the lynching and stuff became such as the Klan and all that, right? I'm not sure any people history lesson here, but um, people don't really understand that. They, they, they know about the Jim Crow laws, but and they know about slavery, and but for some reason they don't seem to connect the two. And like, because it wasn't, you know, emancipation and then Jim Crow. It was emancipation, progress, and then backlash, which is exactly the same thing we're seeing now with the CRT thing. It's not quite as bad, obviously, but, you know, 
I will say, and you can tell me if you agree to this or not, and I said it's a lot on my show, there has been a change since the last few years, right? The change to me is that it's really hard to pretend you can't see this stuff anymore. I just think that people have sort of have to choose a side now. They can pretend, but I think more people know that it's bullshit. That they, they're like, oh, I don't see color. I, don't, I haven't heard, no one has said to me I don't see color in many years, right? There are people who say, I try to treat everyone the same, which is, you know, kind of the same thing. But uh, I don't get as much color evasive nonsense anymore. You get a lot of loud people who hate it, but I think more people are interested, but they don't really know how to do anything about it. You know, I think that working in anti-racism in terms of professions, it, it's like a sport. You know if you're an athlete, and you know, because you were an athlete, you can't just like not do it for a year and expect to be still as good at it. Like You have to keep practicing it. Yeah, you have to keep practicing it, and they know they need to know what the tools are. What are the drills to keep practicing? And that's right. where they fall short. Um, it's just too much work, I think, for some people. It, it is. And then they have to also admit that they were wrong. There, that's that's the work. That's the the hurdle, I think. And I've said this before. Um, because there's research on this, and they, you know, people who are moving through various stages of improving in terms of dealing with racism, particularly white people, and like people get caught up when they get to that point and they realize that they were wrong, and not just wrong, but they were, you know, upholding harm, right? To it, no one wants to be the bad guy or lady or non-binary person, but like so, when you have to admit that, and not only were you the bad person. But you can't go back and fix the bad. <laughs> like, I think it's not just admitting that you were wrong. It's admitting you can't go back and not be wrong for those years you were teaching beforehand or being a social worker beforehand. You have to sit with that forever. Like, that, that to me, like, I empathize with that feeling because that is, that is genuinely hard. I mean, like, it's not an excuse, but it's an understandable human feeling that that is hard to sit with. You're still not. It inside. could be. I mean, I think it could be, but you just, they just got to move on. Like, what are you going to do? Like, go to confession, I guess. Like, it's just, <laughs> you know, that's then holding hostage everyone by, you know, allowing your feeling on your past behavior to um, prevent you from doing things differently or whatever. Like, you're then just keeping things the same. Which is just as irresponsible, which is more irresponsible, actually. Well, to me, I think the people, once they're exposed to it, if they then get stuck, to me, I have no patience for them. Like, if you truly haven't been exposed to it until you're an adult, which is true for a lot of people, although less so these days with the internet, but, like, for people our age, you know, it, as we talked about our education growing up, if you didn't grow up in a black family and you didn't have people, someone teach it to you, especially you probably weren't getting a lot of it in school beyond, like, Martin Luther King. Um, maybe you saw a crash or something. <laughs> but um, now, but like people our age, a lot of them really just didn't get explicit lessons about racism. You know, a lot of people who were told treat everybody the same, but they didn't get explicit uh, teachings about racism and also how racism still existed as a structure. 
right? Or understand that racism is more about power than it is about skin color, right? And okay, so then you hear that in a class. Now I have no patience for you. Like if you once you get taught it explicitly, and like you, it is now on you to keep going, and you don't keep going. That's when I'm like, all right, you know, because. And I'm not saying it's okay to not know until you're an adult, but frankly, you si it is simply in entirely possible, especially for people our age in their mid, mid to late 30s, that they simply weren't taught when they were adolescents, right? Especially the way that high schools are. Even before the CRT backlash, they really just weren't doing a good job of this stuff. Um, but if you're an adult and, and like you really did take a couple of steps, if you can't get past that or you give up, then that, then 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 I have no I have no patience. It's just funny because. My wife is, um, she has less patience than I do <laughs> in terms of these people. Uh, I get frustrated, but I, I, I think because I'm a teacher by nature, I'm like, oh, okay, let's come. I will teach you this stuff. Uh, but you, you don't need to teach anybody anything, so you don't have to spend any time dealing with it. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. Uh, I mean, no, I'm not trying to teach people that. I'm trying to, you know, shed light on where it shows up um, in practice, you know, kind of under practical circumstances, and then, you know, hope that they recognize it moving forward to do things differently. Um, it's not always... People don't want to do it, though. I mean, my problem is that I can't force people to do it, so I can, like, I can have the conversation and we'll entertain the conversation, but beyond that, um, they think probably, oh, there she goes again. I, I can imagine, I'm not sure, but um, I think down the line, they'll think back and be like, oh, wow, I think she was really trying to tell me this or something. I, I do believe that they will reflect on it at some point in the future and recognize the value of it, um, but in the present you know it's just one more thing that they're they are expected to do and a lot of people don't like kind of accountability and expectations well, that's why i call it cancel culture because it's really accountability and they don't want that right you know you're right it's um i don't really know how you can't force especially an adult to do anything right even if they are your employee or whatever. And for me, especially because both of us, but speaking for myself here, I got a new job last year, as you all know, and you know, it was really important to me, especially for my white colleagues, that I was able to be honest about this sort of thing, even if I wasn't supposed to be teaching them all this stuff, although I somehow ended up in the equity committee and I do teach a lot of them stuff, but whatever. Um, but I chose to be, like they didn't force me to. Um, but like, we, at least on the team that I'm on, don't really employ people who come in with a white savior attitude. I don't know how they're doing that vetting, but I haven't met a single, on my team that is. Now, are there people that we work with? But um, there's definitely people we come across who do the work that we do, where they really, really think that they're saving people's lives, you know, uh, in the nonprofit world, right? But all of this, which, may seem unrelated, but is related to, in terms of nonprofits, teaching, social work, all of it, 
the labor conditions in these fields, right? Because who can afford to join these fields most of the time, right? It's the people who want to save people. Because, it, you know, the fact that they're saving people is like a third of their salary. <laughs> like, you know, they're like, well, uh, or, or I remember my boss told me nine years ago, um, because I said to her, you know, it would be good if we could pay these instructors for these English classes. And she said, well, we like our model. It's not a model. <laughs> you just have a bunch of volunteers who aren't actually teachers. <laughs> it's not a model. It's just cheap, right? And But it's common. Like They're not the most egregious place. That's just how it is. And then think about how we would not accept that if these were like children. We wouldn't just hire a bunch of volunteers to teach them English. <laughs> we, we wouldn't do that. I've talked about a lot of this show, but like, and so that's teaching. But like you said, in social work too, you know, we we'll get all all these volunteers or underpaid people or whatever to to try to help people. But you know, the implication is not only can they afford it because they either come from money or they're married to somebody or whatever, but also like they they find it so. Here's the word so. Yeah, I think that's the biggest problem with some of the people I've worked with, um, that they find the reward, like, compensation, which doesn't seem, it seems weird. Um, I've heard a lot of people say, oh yeah, and it, you know, it made me feel good after I did this thing. It's like, okay, but... I don't care how you feel. Like you did the right, like that you, that's what you were supposed to do or whatever. Or maybe that's not what you were supposed to do, but you know, you did it because it was going to make you feel good. So it's not really in the best interest of the client or in the best interest in a reducing harm way. Um, you know, it's just, you're, you're centering your, yourself essentially to provide the support that these people are looking for, which is, you know, to me, in opposition of what we're supposed to be doing. You know, my mindset has changed completely since I really, really started to dig into this and got deeper into my career. And the, more, the first job I'm talking about, obviously, was the first nonprofit job I had, which I started almost exactly 10 years ago now. And, um, you know, that's, you're paid so little that you have to convince yourself it's worth it, otherwise you will be miserable. I mean, you might still be miserable, but like, to get through all of that work for that amount of money, you gotta convince yourself of why you're doing it, you know? I took the job because I was making even less money, and so I just needed a more higher paying job, but like, to stay there for the several years that I stayed there at that salary level, I had to tell myself, this, this is, this is the one that we're doing in this field, and here's the thing, in English teaching, and I don't just mean nonprofits and like adult language. I was making good money. <laughs> That's the sad part. Like I went, I said this before, but like I went to a conference that we put on, and they listed the top salaries for the people who graduated from the program. And mine was not the top, but it was the second from the top. The top was like two thousand more than mine, and like that was all of the graduates ever. And I was number two, and I had like a not well paid job at a nonprofit. Um, and we're supposed to, ex talking about language teaching, but it's the same in social work, we're really just supposed to accept this, you know? Until I got the job that I have now, 
I realized, now you knew this a while ago because you worked in jobs at nonprofits where, you know, the money comes from the contracts and the contracts were large enough that you all were compensated enough to live, right? And I didn't know that that was a thing because they really make it seem like that's what you were going to get from working at a nonprofit, right? You are a hero and heroes don't need money to eat or pay rent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, that's not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, neither, nor are you a hero, or is it the case that you don't need money, is my point. Um, and to talking about the way people feel, it's like, frankly, I don't actually care. Like, if it makes them feel good, but they actually did do the right thing, I don't actually care if they feel good. I don't want them to feel bad. Like I don't, you know, if they did the right thing and they it make, and they feel good at the same time, fine. If they did the right thing and they don't feel anything, also fine. The point is they did, you know, what they were supposed to do to support person or people or group or whatever it is, right? The problem is when that becomes their only motivation or their primary motivation. Because frankly, in this world we live in, a paycheck is itself a primary motivation and that's not bad. I mean, mm -hmm. you can say that's the problem with the world, but we live in this world and so being motivated by the fact that you're going to have a paycheck and therefore your motivation is, I want to do a good job so I keep having a paycheck, that's pretty normal, right? And if you talk like that at some of these nonprofits, they really act like there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, it's tough because the nonprofits, you know, as institutions need to want to, you know, have their staff have a different kind of point of understanding and way to operate. And they're often, you know, daily reinforcing the quote unquote narrative um, that anti-racism is trying to you know, address. It's, it's funny because we used to have these parties at that job, right? A few times a year we'd have these big parties. In the summer, because I was on the administration floor, everybody could go, and that's where I was. You know, I would just wait, and then they'd set up the, like, cocktails, and once a month all summer they'd have this party, right? Just not like a big deal. And then they had a big party in July and a big party in December, right? They ran out half a bar, unlimited this and that and this and that, right? And they would take us bowling. They took us to a Yankee game. Fine. But maybe they could have paid us more. <laughs> I'll take myself to a Yankee game. I'll just go bowling, right? You know, I enjoyed hanging out with them, but like, I couldn't really afford to like go out with my coworkers. I never went out with my coworkers. Some of that was my choices and what I was doing with my day, but also it didn't even occur to me to go out with them because we couldn't really afford to go out nicely, especially in the area that the job was in. So, you know, it's, um, you know, they pay you in, in you know, flowers, basically, uh, and smiles. I don't know how we ended up here because we were talking about Black History Month, but I think it's important to see all the ways that it's really hard, even in the professions that are supposed to be 
supporting different groups of people, how to really ensure that the people stay centered and centered not as victims, not as, you know, because some of these people really are going through a lot of trauma, right? So I don't want to pretend that people aren't having hard lives and that these nonprofits, when they're doing their work correctly, are not helping people. Um, <laughs> you, see, you think they're not? Well, helping? no, they are. It's true. It's true. I, I had like a, you know, over the summer when we were seeing the people coming from Texas, uh, the asylum seekers, I guess I don't really like that label, but... That's the legal thing. It's the least offensive in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, we were seeing a lot of them and, you know, seeing people like ch children and toddlers with like no shoes, like they had nothing, um, like literally had nothing. Um, it was hard to see, right? Like, you know, and I, I am not typically like affected in that way because it's like yeah people are going to come in all different types of circumstances um but it was and everyone really was doing like a good job like they were really like committed to it and they wanted to serve everyone and we wanted to see everyone um the downside to that spirit and attitude was uh not taking into account are we even really doing a good job in what we're providing and what is the burden and toll on the staff it was kind of like at the expense of all the staff. Um, and any time I tried to raise that, you know, I was quickly, you know, brushed, the, brushed aside because it didn't matter because we needed to serve as many people. Um, and again, I understand that, yes, we need to see as many people as we can because they're coming to us like right from the bus, which I understand, but if we are not prepared to see them um, or we don't even know what we're providing to them, uh, then we, you know, what are we doing? We're having them sit in our lobby for hours, and that's not great. Where some people thought, well, at least they're with us. I don't know if that's better, you know what I mean? I don't know if that's better that at least they're with us. Why do you think this is better than something else? Um, so, you know, there's got to be a moment in which there is, like, a challenge or a question to evaluate what is happening um, because you can't have your, you know, your heart I guess that's what people are going by in the right place but uh, it could also be that doesn't mean it's not causing harm I think on the complete flip side of that there's a lot of programs that seek to for example take black students and give them a better chance to get to college right um, and then it's all about getting them college and career ready what they say. College and career ready. College and career ready. As if these people live in a cape, right? Um, but then the college isn't really ready for them. And then a lot of them struggle. And some of them fail. And then people say, well, you know, they just couldn't really hack it. It's just, I'm saying, it's not the same thing as an asylum seeker, but I just mean in the sense that, like, people come and we don't really, really support them and then something happens, either they end up on the street or they end up back in wherever they came from or whatever, and we're like, well, you know, they just really couldn't acclimate to the society, mm -hmm. you know? And um, you see this a lot, right? And does that mean we shouldn't have the first half, the people who are trying to get them to the place? No, because there are obviously programs who know that, 
and they're like, we're going to stay with you and support you. But they shouldn't have to be doing that, because the school should be doing that. All of the stuff I had growing up where, in retrospect, I was undiagnosed with ADHD, that's the school's fault, because the school looks through things in a very myopic, limited way. Are you doing well on the tests? And I was. So then we don't need to help you, right? Or in the in the case of the black students who are getting support to get into college, are you doing well on the tests? Nope. We still don't need to help you. It doesn't matter, <laughs> right? They 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 just it's I don't know it's individualistic, um, you know, sink or swim attitude, uh, and they put you on the the website. Look how proud we are to have you there every time for the several years that. I was getting ads for grad school, even though I was already almost finished with a doctoral program. I was still, still getting emails to apply to programs, which is funny. There's always one black person in the picture. <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, I wasn't going to go there. But I saw that you have one black student. Now I'm going to go. And I think about all this to think about our son, right? And, and you know, he is the only black student in his daycare. Uh, he's not the only student of color. But we recently led a conversation with the other parents about this stuff. It went better than I expected it to. I don't mean that I thought they were going to argue with me, but they, um, on the other hand, this is a home daycare. It's the kind of daycare you go to when you are more open to this sort of thing. So it was a friendly audience to the point where at least one of each parental unit showed up. Um, How did you feel about that? I mean, yeah, I think it was good, a good start. I mean, it was a little bit less direct than I was expecting, but, you know, I think it was a good start to, uh, you know, engage in the topic. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, the people there who clearly started doing the work were not the people that really need to do the work. I mean, they need to keep doing the work. But the people, there's clearly people there, white parents, who know that they need to keep doing work, as one of them said to you as you were leaving, right? <laughs> what did she say? It's not your job to teach us, but thank you. Right. <laughs> um, although in that sense it kind of was because we agreed to teach them, so. I mean, we literally right. agreed to do it, so. Um, but I don't think there's, I mean, like when we went to the other, the more expensive daycare, right? How many, how many black kids did we see? Half? I think we saw one kid that was probably biracial. It was a half a black kid. <laughs> and we don't even know if he was half black. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, um, these places will now advertise with a person of color or a kid of color in their images, but like they still don't have very many. And frankly, I don't want Ezel to ever be in the situation where he is everybody's black friend. Like only black mm-hmm. I mean, at this age, that is technically probably true, if only because these kids just don't know that many kids yet. But I mean, I do not want this kid to go and be at a school like mine, where, like in retrospect, I was a lot of those people's black friend. I mean, I don't even know what people considered you, <laughs> but like, looking back, especially when we got to like college, I think you were a lot of those people's only friend of color. I mean, probably. I don't know what they considered me either. 
I have no idea. The, your grad school friends, you stuck out a little bit there too. Yeah, but they were a little less, I mean we worked together after grad school, right. so it was a little less like, I don't know, if there was like a stronger relationship there because it was kind of like we were all choosing the same paths. Um, I mean, still same concept applies. Um, yeah, but it's weird. It's, I hadn't thought about it for, I hadn't thought about it. That's why I asked you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things I reflect on, right? Because, you know, people used to say a lot of racist shit to me, but not about me. I'm sure people said racist shit about me, but I wasn't there. Um, but like people would confide things to me that were racist, but it was about black people in general, because they thought I was different from the blacks. You know, that was not said explicitly, but like in retrospect, that was what was being implied. Like I'm telling you this, because I feel safe with you, a different kind of black person, you know? And this, here's the thing. I had a friend in college who was like that, in the sense that he was biracial, he's Westchester, He's a Republican. He literally worked on the Romney campaign, right? And you met him when we went to college, right? Yeah, in, in 2017. Um, anyway, what I found out is I went on a date with somebody who apparently had been on a date, who like dated him in law school, and she cut her hair to like, like a shape. You know, it's like black girls have really short hair sometimes, right? But I'm saying, what you understand what I'm talking about. And he did not like it. He only liked it when she had long, straight, permed hair. <laughs> so I mean, like, there are black guys, or black people, who are like that, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think Clarence Thomas is doing, <laughs> right? So I think they thought I was like that. And in retrospect, I feel ashamed that I did not stand up for myself enough to understand what they were saying. Because there's no N-words, you know, there was no explicit, the blacks are bad, or something like that. But they would come up to me and try to get me to agree with their racist shit. And I really just didn't want to fight them until I was not like 11th or 12th grade, and then I kind of did want to fight them. But like for most of my years there, I just was like, everyone, I just want you all to like me, just leave me alone. <laughs> um, and I probably agreed with some stuff, or I vocally probably agreed with some stuff that I didn't actually agree with myself. But I don't want, I hope I've always been as insecure as I was, but. Also, I just don't want him to be in a position where he doesn't feel like he could just stand up for himself because of who he's around. Mm-hmm. You're nodding again. Yeah. <laughs> That's, that makes sense. Because it's... You know, I think about every time I see one of these videos, and I don't watch most of them, but you still end up seeing some of them because the news is irresponsible. And... You know, I think about where we live. We live in a very transportation-heavy area, so which is one of the very main. In fact, is why we moved here. In the sense that we were living in Astoria, Astoria has transportation, but we weren't very close to the subway. Of course, not close to the subway is a New York relative thing because we were like seven minutes from the subway. If you live in another city, seven minutes is great. <laughs> like we, I was in D.C. last week, and like being seven minutes from the subway was like, oh my god. <laughs> um, but 
it was seven minutes and a staircase, although I actually think it has an elevator now. They put it in there. Um, and so we had a chance to move here, and we live above like seven different subway lines. So it's basically a one-seat, no-transfer ride to most places, unless we're literally going to the Bronx or something. Um, so we don't have to drive that often, is the point I was making. And I have my issues with driving that aren't related to this, as people have heard. But there's also the fact that, like, to me, there are a lot of places where I just don't feel comfortable being in a car. And when I think about Ezel and, and, and keeping him safe, like, there's giant chunks of the country where I never want to be in a car there, but those places you need a car to be in. Mm-hmm. And, like, even the town you grew up in, the town is fine, but I feel like if I went 10, 15 minutes in the wrong direction, it's not a place where I'd feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, what do you think about those areas? Um, I don't, I mean, maybe, it's hard to say, because there's a lot of the areas are like close to commercial, so you, you know, people are probably a little less whatever, but if you're like in a very secluded residential area. Yeah, probably not great. We've thought about different environments in which to raise him. And one of the things I think about a lot on the subway is that in New York, one of the benefits for me and for a lot of people is that the subway exists. And as much as people complain about the MTA, move to another American city, I, I tell you. Um, obviously, other countries better, but like in the United States, maybe Chicago, and that's it. Um, and I say to people that like, unless you're like succession level rich, if you work in an office in Wall Street, and then a lot of them work from home, obviously, but so do we sometimes. <laughs> You're taking the train to Wall Street. No one is driving to Wall Street. Like, why would you ever do that? You know, maybe if you finish the work day and you want to go to a bar, you take an Uber. But like, nobody is driving to an office in Wall Street financial district. Nobody. Um, but, and I, well, I was naive years ago, and I thought one of the benefits is that you are never going to be a person in New York who just doesn't see black people. Like, it's almost impossible that you just don't see them, right? Even if they're not on your block. You're going to see them on the subway or somewhere. But then I thought about it, and I said to myself, but who do you see on the subway, right? To the people who never see black people, the most visible black people on the subway are the people who are really struggling. So if you don't actually live near them, and the only image you get of them in person is going to be people who are really struggling on the subway, and you're now associating black people with mental illness, you're associated with poverty, and so I'm not saying there aren't people who are struggling and more poor, I'm just saying that's the only black people you ever see. And so you really have to live with, not with, but near, and be immersed in different groups of people if you don't want to really have to do this work so extensively when you're an adult. And most people, for reasons we all know why, do not live in diverse areas. Even if the city is diverse, even if the zip code is diverse, 
your part of the zip code may not be diverse. One of the things we looked up when we looked up our zip code, the percentage of black people in the zip code is actually not that low. But if you parse it, you realize that most of the black people in the zip code live in the projects. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying that if you don't live in the projects, you don't actually live near those black people. Um, so it's very easy if you're a white person to say, my zip code is diverse. But then your building's not. Your block is not. Your school is not. Your job is not. And then your children, and this is why we're talking about this, even if you are the nicest person and your children are very nice people, if they do not have the lived experience with people, right, it, it is going to be a considerable effort they're going to have to put in as adults. It's possible, but it's a lot more work. And when we think about Black History Month and the failures of it, the fact that it's so surface and then it just ends, um, and it leaves people thinking that they can just, the people who would like to give up on thinking about it are given an excuse to give up on it on March 1st. By the time you hear this, the people who don't want to care about it have stopped caring about it. The people who do care about it are still talking about it. And I don't necessarily always know how to bridge the gap between the people who see it as a month and we move on to the next month uh, or as part of their actual lives. You have a final thought before you fall asleep at 745? I, I'm not falling asleep. <laughs> I'm teasing um I don't ha I don't know. Um what's a better question? <laughs> a better question than the one I asked you? Yeah. Okay. She's saying I didn't ask a good question. Um I don't know. I mean I guess when you think about how do you think that someone, especially who grows up in an area like yours, perhaps, can ensure that their children do not grow up having to do all this work as adults? Um, I mean... See, that's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. They're... I mean, they're going to have to do a lot of work on their own. And... Um... They have to understand that it's not just about the treatment of others and others being other people who don't look like them. Because that's, I think, another thing that it often boils down to. Like, oh, they were treated so poorly, so we have to kind of like is justifying why they need to treat people you know I guess black people with respect when it's like far beyond being sure you hold the door um so they have to kind of be able to boil it down to understanding how it you know further benefits them um which, you know, that is centering them, but I think that's important because it's, again, it's not just like an outward expression. It's, it's a much deeper kind of thing um, that will bring everyone, you know, to a better place. Uh, so that's what I would say, that, you know, it's fine for them to do it, but they have to really understand, you know, why they're, why they think they have to do it. Yeah, I think those parents, because, like, a lot of people in those situations don't necessarily move to those places as adults, right? They grew up there, or they moved there not because this is a great place, but because it's near their jobs or something, right? So I'm saying, although there are people for whom this isn't true, there are a lot of people who live in very white areas who I'm not blaming for living there. 
But once you live there, if you ever hear something like this, right? If you, I don't know how many people who listen to my show live in very white areas, but I'm sure at least more than zero do because I had people in the UK and <laughs> uh, Canada. So, um, and you have kids or you're planning to. I mean, we're talking about this, we care about this for our own selves, but when I tell people that I want to make things safer, I'm really talking about my son, you know? And I'm not just talking about physical safety, although we did mention that on this discussion, but I'm really talking about psychological and emotional safety. Um, so I guess the last word I have to say for parents here, particularly white parents or anyone who's living in an area that's not diverse or anyone who only hears about black history between February 1st and 28th every year, is do whatever you can to ensure that as your kids age, they are not the type of people who will inflict psychological and emotional harm on their black classmates and peers because I think you all know well enough that your kids should not be inflicting physical harm on them or using slurs or whatever. No one listening to my show would be doing that. But how truly safe are you, that's the first thing, but also are your children for someone like my son? Would my son in five, six years when he knows more about this stuff be able to trust your child? And I think that's something that you have to ask yourself. And if you aren't sure, then you have a lot more work to do. Would you agree? Yeah, that's a good way of, uh, you know, posing, posing the scenario. All right, Madam Gerald, or Tiger Gerald. Uh, I think it's an interesting conversation. We're going to have more, because um, I think I want to talk more about parenting and race on the show and uh, I don't want to only have my perspective because my perspective on parenting is only half the battle with our son so whenever I really want to talk about anything related to parenting I'm going to go to the other parent I know the best I guess that could include my parents but that would be weird so <laughs> alright hope you enjoyed it folks